Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Today on the California Report magazine, we're dishing up some of our favorite stories from our Golden State Plate series, which explores the backstory behind some iconic food and drinks born right here, like the spicy snack created by a former janitor. So before the invention of Flaming Hot Cheetos, what we Mexican kids would do would just get a bag of Cheetos and put a bunch of tapatio on it, so they're already flaming hot. And the complicated origins of the fortune cookie. The Japanese invented them, the Chinese popularized them, but the Americans ultimately consumed them. Plus, the Gold Rush-era drink with a potent and illegal secret ingredient. I have a theory it is compounded of the shavings of cherub's wings, the red clouds of sunset and fragments of lost epics by dead masters. I'm Susie Rocho, in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. If you're a cocktail drinker, you've probably tasted a few Pisco sours in your time. It's that pale, foamy drink made with Pisco, a highly potent Peruvian brandy. The first recipe for the Pisco Sour came from Peru back in the 1940s. But many years before that, 19th century San Francisco was gripped by a craze for another Pisco concoction that KQED's Carly Severin says should have come with a warning label. It's happy hour in San Francisco's Comstock Saloon in the city's North Beach neighborhood. And Anthony Kocek, the bartender, is making a cocktail that was invented in this very city, on this same street, in fact, over 100 years earlier. Add a generous helping of ice, and then you want to vigorously shake it. Double strain, chill flat. It's called the Pisco Punch. You don't see it on many menus in this town, or anywhere, really. It's not frothy, like a pisco sour, and when it's strained into its chilled antique glass, it looks like pale liquid gold. We finish it off with doing a really nice lemon expression from a twist. Dig deep in there, you can see the pith is really white. But in the 1800s, this wasn't just a drink. Ordering pisco punch was a status symbol, and it said everything about the newfound wealth and ambition of Gold Rush San Francisco may be what floods this town with cash nowadays, 
But back then, it was gold. Prospectors streamed into the city with money to burn and tastes to be satisfied. And they found a mixology culture that wouldn't be out of place today, says cocktail historian Duggan McDonald. Early San Francisco was the fastest growing richest city in the world, and it was a port city and it had access to so many amazing, wonderful ingredients, right? And when you have access, when you have wealth, what do you spend it on? But amazing things to put on your body and in your mouth, and that's food and drink. Every scene needs its headquarters. And in 1880s San Francisco, that place was a bar called the Bank Exchange and Billiard Saloon. It was here that the Pisco Punch was born, on the site where the Transamerica Pyramid now stretches into the San Francisco sky. And this saloon was no dive. A grand marbled bar, lovely chandeliers. Uh, it opened up in 1853, frankly, as a testament to the West. And behind the bar was the bank saloon's very own celebrity bartender, a Scotsman named Duncan Nicholl. He was the guy serving Pisco Punch to San Francisco's movers and shakers for an eye-watering price. In today's inflation, that would be $25 per cocktail. Today, CEOs battle over technology patents. But back then, Duncan Nichols' big triumph was acquiring the intellectual property rights to the bank's Pisco Punch recipe when he bought the place. It was that big. But what was so special about this drink? What was in it? For a start, there was the Pisco itself. Pisco is a distilled fermented grape juice from Peru with extreme potency. And San Francisco was wild for it. But the stuff from Peru is single distilled, so it's distilled to proof, meaning it's not distilled to a higher proof and then cut with water. That kind of pisco is more concentrated than anything else on this planet. I mean, it gets into your bones. Peruvian traders had long been bringing pisco the four and a half thousand miles north up to the San Francisco Bay. And then gold arrived. And then more Peruvians came up because, obviously, they had a relationship with this territory, but they also had a relationship with mining. And then you add some pineapple. Now, pineapples arrived into San Francisco on many of the same ships that brought the Pisco. And they were a luxury item. And imagine, only in the richest city in the world would you then take that sweet and magical fruit and put it in a cocktail, for God's sake. Duggan tells me that San Francisco store owners would take whole pineapples straight from the docks and place them in their windows. And that pineapple became the international symbol of hospitality and luxury. Along with some lime and some syrup, Pisco Punch boasted a mystery ingredient that the owner, Duncan, would never divulge. A secret addition that, along with the Pisco, made this cocktail so mythically strong that the saloon apparently only allowed two per customer. No man but one knows what is in it. I have a theory it is compounded of the shavings of cherub's wings, the glory of a tropical dawn, the red clouds of sunset, and fragments of lost epics by dead masters. That's what author Rudyard Kipling, no less, wrote about the Pisco Punch. It makes a gnat fat an elephant. Is what another anonymous fan wrote at the time. And maybe that mystery ingredient might explain why writers were just so effusive in their love for it. That special something might have been Van Mariani, a fortified wine from Bordeaux, the principal ingredient in that, until it got banned, was coca leaves from Peru. In essence, 
cocaine. 19th century California, specifically San Francisco writing, you look at Twain and Kipling and all these guys, and there's a lot of energy in their prose, uh, a lot of hyperbole, shall we say. Uh, so I'm not surprised that these guys had a few pisco punches with their coca leaves in them. But as with all crazes, things must come to an end. And in the case of the pisco punch, that end was prohibition in 1919. Like so many bar owners, Duncan Nickel was forced to close his bank exchange saloon. And not long after, he took his mystery pisco punch recipe to his grave. And San Francisco's hottest cocktail became a forgotten legend. Until 50 years later, in the 1970s, when a version of the bank's original recipe was unearthed. Places like the Comstock Saloon began bringing it back, with a spot of guesswork around that secret ingredient. And here, just down the street from where the bank once stood, they're still serving up several Pisco punches a night. And as my bartender tells me, like Duncan Nickel over a century ago, they still can't resist a little mystery. We have a secret proprietary ingredient that we put inside of our cocktail that we don't tell anybody what it is. Uh, I'll let you try it on its own, but you can tell me what you think it is, but I won't tell you if you guess right. Sounds like a challenge, right? Just go easy. For The California Report, I'm Carly Seven. If you're taking a road trip this summer, no doubt you've stopped at a gas station mini-mart for snacks. Maybe you're a pretzel fiend, or maybe gummy bears are more your thing. How about flaming Hot Cheetos? This California-born snack has a devoted following, including some Cheeto-loving teenagers in Fresno. I like the texture. Like I like the crunchiness. I can't really explain it, but it's just addicting in a way. They're kind of spicy for me. Like after school or when you're watching a movie or something? It's like good hot, like the hot that makes you want to keep eating it. Bianca Taylor digs into the history of this spicy snack. Flaming Hot Cheetos in one way or another have always been part of my life. Gustavo Ariano is a features writer for the Los Angeles Times and author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. So before the invention of Flaming Hot Cheetos, what we Mexican kids would do would just get a bag of Cheetos and put a bunch of tapatio on it. So they're already flaming hot. Richard Montañez was one of those kids. He was born in Mexico, but grew up in Southern California, picking grapes on a migrant labor farm with his 10 siblings. He dropped out of school at a really young age and in 1976, without knowing how to read or write, got a job as a janitor at Frito-Lay in Rancho Cucamonga. He had been working there for nearly two decades when one day Richard was mopping floors when he noticed something was wrong. Cheetos were getting pumped out without their signature neon orange flavoring on top. So he decided to take a few of these blank Cheetos home to experiment with some of his favorite spices, things he had grown up eating on the burritos his mom made him and on the elote he bought from street vendors. Here he is describing that day in a talk at UCLA. What if I put some chili on it? Mm-hmm. I made my own chili. See, it just wasn't my idea. I made my own chili. So there I was, I made it, and I, oh, it tastes great. Took it to work. What do you think? What do you think? Everybody loved it. 
Frito-Lay had just launched a campaign to empower its workers, so Richard took those words to heart and called up the CEO of Frito-Lay. He told him he had an idea for how to break into the Latino market. Before they met, he read a library book on market strategy and bought a $2 tie. At that meeting, he sold the idea of Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Here's Gustavo Arellano again. Montaigne's genius was that he was bold enough to go up to his bosses and say, hey, look, this would be a really great idea. And the bosses were smart enough to uh, run with the idea. Decades later, his creation is one of Frito-Lay's top-selling products. And Richard is an executive at PepsiCo. By the way, I reached out to Richard for this story, but he never got back to me. Either way, this is an insane rags-to-riches tale. But it's not where this story ends. These days, Flaming Hot Cheetos are completely ingrained in pop culture. From hip-hop shout-outs, this song is appropriately called Hot Cheetos and Takis. Hot Cheetos and Takis. Hot Cheetos and Takis. I can't get enough of these Hot Cheetos and Takis. To eBay. Well, this just goes to show people spend money on anything, or at least try to. A Cheeto shaped like the famous Gorilla Harambe, just sold on eBay for nearly $100,000. And Katy Perry's Halloween costume. The 30-year-old pop star went to Kate Hudson's Halloween party Thursday night dressed as a crunchy, flaming hot Cheeto. It hasn't all been good publicity, though. In 2012, schools in Pasadena banned flaming hot Cheetos from their campuses, citing nutritional concerns. But that hasn't stopped chefs from creating dishes inspired by the red-hot snack, like steaks and burritos, sushi, and even pizza. So how long were you eating hot Cheetos before you came up with this idea? Long time. Yeah, I used to kind of save my lunch money and eat hot Cheetos instead, so... Pike Agrarian is the owner of Amici Pizza Kitchen in Glendale and claims to be the inventor of the Flamin' Hot Cheeto pizza. The secret's really in all three combined with the sauce and the cheese and the dough. And then we kind of just crush up the hot Cheetos and then we bake it in the oven. And then afterwards we put the regular, like original hot Cheetos on there. Hike says people see the photos of the hot Cheeto pizza on social media and come from all over to try it. So of course I couldn't leave without trying some myself. All right, I'm gonna take a bite. Cool. It's really good. I like it. But the most surprising thing to me about the story of Flamin' Hot Cheetos, besides the fact that people are putting them on pizzas, is Richard Montañez's story. It hasn't been co-opted by big companies claiming the invention as their own, and it hasn't been mythified or whitewashed. Gustavo says this is pretty rare. When it comes to Mexican food, there is so many uh, origin stories, myths, really, and almost all of them are fake. Almost all of them are just a bunch of lies. And so the Flaming Hot Cheetos uh, origin story is one of the very few that has actually been verified. Not only is it verified, Richard Montañez has written an autobiography. There's a feature film about him in the works. Ariano says Hollywood doesn't have nearly enough stories featuring Latinos in a positive light. But Richard's life is kind of the perfect inspirational tale featuring an incredibly unique snack. What flavor is flaming Hot? It is not a flavor. It transcends flavors. It transcends food. That's why it just, it, it, it hits people and it stays with people so much. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor. You're listening to the California Report magazine.
This week, we're featuring stories from our Golden State Plate series, which explores the origins of food and drinks concocted right here. Our next story starts in a tiny alley in San Francisco's Chinatown, at a store that's a stop for thousands of tourists each year. So each one who come in, they get a cookie. This is the Golden Gate Fortune Cookie Factory. Owner Kevin Chan demonstrates how each cookie is pulled quickly off a hot, rotating press. And bend them. It's by hand. I can hand roll them 10 to 15,000 a day. Fortune cookies appear at the end of every meal at most Chinese restaurants. But I wanted to find out, are they actually Chinese? It's a chilly morning at another San Francisco tourist attraction, the Japanese Tea Garden in Golden Gate Park. I'm here with one of the gardeners, Stephen Pitsenbarger. He's a bit of a tea garden historian. We are really a gem that's for San Francisco as much as it's for the tourists. He's taking me to the gift shop, where bolted to the top of a display case, I see two small iron molds, black with long, thin handles. They're called kata and are used to make Japanese crackers called senbei. A small sign says that these presses date back to 1914. As you can see, a very simple device, just pressing it flat. A device, Stephen says, a caretaker at the garden adapted to make fortune cookies more than a century ago. His name was Makoto Hagiwara, and he may have served the first fortune cookies in California right here. Each cookie was imprinted with his initials, M.H. The story that I understand is he took a Japanese cookie, uh, senbei, and he got the idea to put a little note in it. You can probably trace the history of fortune cookies back to L.A. and San Francisco. But, you know, fortune cookies as a concept go way back to Japan. That's Jennifer Eight Lee. She wrote the Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food. But her research took her to Japan. Around the shrine in downtown Kyoto, there is actually a bunch of families that still make quote-unquote fortune cookies in the Japanese tradition. Lee writes about a woodblock print from 1878 of a man grilling what the Japanese call fortune crackers. They look like American fortune cookies on steroids. They're actually bigger and browner. They're made with like miso paste and sesame, so have a much nuttier flavor than the American versions would tend to be yellow and like buttery and vanilla, reflecting American palate. The ones in Japan also have fortunes, but not baked inside. Instead, they're pinched in the fold. Lee says Japanese bakers still make these fortune crackers one by one, much like Makoto Hagiwara did in the 1900s in Golden Gate Park. But making them one by one was time-consuming. And as their popularity grew, the Hagiwaras found they couldn't keep up with demand. They outsourced production to a local confectionery shop called Benkyoto. My name is Gary T. Ono. My grandfather was the founder of Benkyoto. His name was Sueichi Okamura. Gary says his grandfather worked with Hagiwara to adapt a fortune cookie recipe to the American sweet tooth. They came up with a vanilla extract flavor that we know today. I visit Gary's apartment in L.A.'s Little Tokyo. On the living room ceiling is a giant foam fortune cookie with the message, Made in Japan, sticking out of it. 
He drags out a heavy suitcase where wrapped in newspaper are several kata. Oh, those were my duffel bags. They're heavier than I imagined and sport the familiar initials MH, the Japanese tea gardens Makoto Hagiwara. All right. You can see where a, a cookie dough would go. Then you squeeze it and you can lock it. Then you put it over the charcoal or the flame and, the, and you flip it. Eventually, Gary says, Benkyoto helped develop a machine to mass-produce the cookies. But how did this American adaptation of a Japanese cracker become so associated with Chinese restaurants? Author Jennifer Aitley says there were a couple of factors. When the Japanese first came to the United States, a lot of them actually ran Chinese restaurants because back in the 1910s, 1920s, Americans were not eating sushi, right? Sushi, raw fish, like no-go. So instead, you had um, Japanese opening Chinese restaurants because that was familiar with like chop suey and chow mein and egg foo young. And in this mix of... Japanese families opening uh, Chinese restaurants, they began serving fortune cookies as a form of dessert. So Japanese bakeries in California, like Ben Kyoto, manufactured fortune cookies for decades, until 1942, when citizens of Japanese ancestry were forced into internment camps. Now they were taken to racetracks and fairgrounds where the army almost overnight had built assembly centers. Among those were Japanese-American bakers who made fortune cookies. And at the same time, you had a huge rise in popularity of Chinese restaurants during World War II. And as part of that, the Chinese started serving fortune cookies and, in fact, started manufacturing them in mass. So I like to say that fortune cookies, the Japanese invented them, the Chinese popularized them, but the Americans ultimately consumed them. Hi, how are you? Hi. Um, sencha for two. One sencha? Uh-huh. And two and, cups? Yeah, two sure. cups and the um, tea cookies. I'm back at the Japanese tea garden in San Francisco, drinking tea and reading fortunes with my husband, John. Mm. Oh, here we go. The stock market may be your ticket to success. <laughs> we'll see about that. We've got a personal connection to fortune cookies, too. We gave them out as wedding favors. And like the ones now served at the Japanese tea garden, they came from Chinatown. And our final story today is about something as ubiquitous as ketchup and mustard. Ranch dressing. It's everywhere. But I bet you didn't know it's got California roots. And the place that gave the creamy buttermilk dressing its name was a real ranch on the Central Coast. Peter Gilstrap brings us the story. Come with us to Hidden Valley, where the ranch dressing says fresh in every creamy bite. Come to the valley, Hidden Valley, where the taste of ranch was born. Well, that's not exactly true. The lush, sunny expanse you see in this vintage TV commercial for the world's most popular salad dressing is about 2,000 miles south of the real birthplace of Hidden Valley Ranch dressing. But frozen Alaskan bush dressing just doesn't have the same ring to it. So there's a man named Steve Henson, and I believe he was from Nebraska, and he and his wife uh, moved up to Alaska in the late 40s, early 50s. That's Los Angeles food writer Catherine Spires. She hosts the culinary history podcast, Smart Mouth. 
He was a contractor, um, I believe working as a plumber for Alaskan oil companies. And when he was working on crews out there in the tundra, he also became a cook for all the crews, which was just a hobby of his. He enjoyed doing it. Henson came up with a buttermilk-based dressing, mixing in garlic, salt, pepper, herbs, and spices. The crews loved it, but after three years in the wild, Henson's contract was up. And though he was done with Alaska, it had given him the magical, still nameless salad dressing that was to change his life and the lives of salad lovers forever. Then he and his wife Gail moved down to Santa Barbara County and bought a ranch that they named Hidden Valley Ranch. It was meant to be a dude ranch, a guest ranch, but they started making more money off the salad dressing that they had made and popularized there. But it was not an overnight success. In the mid-50s, the Hensons worked hard to keep things afloat, fixing up their rundown dude ranch in the San Marcos Pass, just north of Santa Barbara. And when things started to get busy, Gail would single-handedly cook up 300 steak dinners a night and then entertain guests by playing the organ. And they gave the ranch the right name. It was off the road, just a little sign carved out of wood that said Hidden Valley Ranch. But when you got in there, the ranch house was quite nice. That's Carol Henson. She's married to Nolan Henson, the son of Stephen Gale, who've both passed away. These days, Nolan is suffering from poor health, but Hidden Valley Ranch was his career. It was his whole life. Carol met Nolan when he hired her to work for the company. She knew the whole family. Steve was a little Dickens, but he came up with that, and it's just gone, as they say nowadays, viral. (laughs) But he told me, that they fooled around with it for a while, and it was invented so they can buy booze and cigarettes. (laughs) Ranch visitors demanded jars of the stuff to take home, which led to the Hensons creating a powdered version. That really took off, and they were able to mail the mix anywhere in the country. In fact, Nolan's very first job as a kid was putting the mix into envelopes. By the early 70s, Hidden Valley Ranch was a phenomenon, in demand at supermarkets and salad bars nationwide. In 1972, the Hensons bowed out of the dressing game, selling their name and recipe to the company that owns Pine Sol, Mr. Plumber, and Fresh Step Kitty Litter. They sold it to Clorox Corporation. They had a big party with a whole bunch. They have tons of attorneys. And they tried to get Nolan drunk, but uh, he kept throwing the drinks in the planter. <laughs> so, Why were they trying to get him drunk? Less money. If he signed something, you know, there you yeah. go. The Hensons ultimately got $8 million for the dressing, good money back in 72, and a good deal for Clorox. In 2017, Hidden Valley Products earned more than $450 million. All for that simple little concoction, but it was the taste of California. Again, Catherine Spires. I would imagine that in its original incarnation, when it was served at Hidden Valley Ranch in Santa Barbara County, that it did taste like California, because a big part of it is all the herbs in it. Are they using fresh herbs in the mass-produced Clorox product now? No, why would they? (laughs) It would go bad. So, no, I don't necessarily think it tastes like California as is, but you can make your own ranch dressing. It's relatively simple, and that absolutely tastes like California. 
and it's a taste that Nolan Henson still enjoys. Oh, of course. Of course he does. We still make us a quart now and then. We have the ingredients and stuff, but nobody's getting them because they have to figure it out on their own. Good luck with that. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Los Angeles. We'd love to hear your ideas for other California foods we should explore in our Golden State Plate series. Drop us a line at calreport at kqed.org. That's calreport at kqed.org. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. The technical producer is Seal Muller. Our senior editor is Victoria Malion. The California Report's editorial team also includes Asala Sanapur, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Susie Racho. Sasha Coca returns next week. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Strauss Family Creamery, celebrating 25 years of environmental leadership, collaborative farmer relationships, and minimally processed 100% organic dairy products. Learn more at StraussFamilyCreamery.com. And Paint Care, now with 760 drop-off sites in California, where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.